about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Goliath is dead. The women are singing. Saul has slain his thousands and David tens of thousands. It's a great scene of victory. All of Israel is rejoicing. There has been victory on a battlefield. And yet, even as this happens, like petrol being poured on a fire, Saul's envious heart burns hotter and brighter against David. These are the circumstances, this is the background to the friendship between Jonathan and David. Tonight we continue our series thinking about friendship and we do so by looking at the friendship of David and Jonathan and starting to think about what that actually means for us. Last week we heard that the friendship on, between Jonathan and David was described as a friendship like someone being attached to someone else's soul. David was attached to Jonathan's soul. It's described as a rich and deep and intimate friendship. Jonathan has actually handed his prince's robe, his armour, his sword, his bow, his belt to David. He's abdicated his right to kingship and he's passed it on to David. So deep is their friendship. And as we heard of that, Matt challenged us to really think through about our own friendships and to abdicate our vision of our rights and our freedoms to the true king so that we could grasp God's intended plans for friendships. Well, today we continue that journey. And as we continue that journey, what we'll come to see and what we'll discover is that loyalty and intimacy in friendships is not only found in marriages and in families, but that actually loyalty and intimacy may be one of the lost arts of friendship that we need to rediscover anew and afresh. Well, if we return to our story, there's singing, there's dancing, and as Saul's heart burns against David, we start to discover a sinister side to Saul. Now, one of the things I love about 1 Samuel is Well, it's actually very violent, but there's actually a comedy routine taking place throughout 1 Samuel. The author intends us to have a smile on our face as we notice various things about how the plot develops. In chapter 18, we discover one of them. Uh, While David is playing his lyre, as he usually did, Saul has a spear in hand. Now, you've got to remember, Saul is like the chief of the army. The guy who's in charge of the whole nation, he he knows how to fight. 
And what does he do? He plans to attack David. And so he throws his spear, not once, but twice, and misses David. Uh, He does it a little bit later, as we heard read, with his own son. There are other situations, too, where Saul just looks like he's mad. Saul's men are pursuing David. They're going to his house. They get to his house and they expect to find David there. But David's wife has heard what's happening. And into his bed, she places an idol with some goat's hair. And David disappears outside the window and runs away. It's kind of like a a comedy sketch. However, the situation just gets worse. And Jonathan and David, we find, have this conversation at the beginning of 1 Samuel 20. David has fled and he meets Jonathan. And he says, what have I done? What have I done to your father? How have I wronged him? Why is he trying to kill me? Now, Jonathan appears like a very loyal son. Look what he says there in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 20. Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. And it's quite touching to see the loyalty of Jonathan. He's honouring his father. He's saying, my father wouldn't do that. He's not that kind of man. And as we heard read in the chapter, the, the story unfolds and they, Jonathan and David agree to a signal around a big party that's being thrown. And the idea is if Jonathan, if John, Jonathan uh, is at the party and if David, if he notices something's going on about David and if it goes on for a couple of days, then there's a signal and David better run for his life. Well, actually, that's what happens. Jonathan does notice what's going on. Saul does get very angry. Saul does want to kill David. And what happens next is quite unexpected. The expectation is that Jonathan would remain loyal to his father. He would continue to honour his father. Now, in that particular culture, sons were expected to be absolutely loyal to their fathers, particularly the king. It's an honour-shame culture, and so Jonathan, if he acts against his father, brings shame to the whole family. It's a culture with a we mentality, not an I mentality. You don't act by yourself, you act in relationship to other people. And so the pressure is on Jonathan to honour his parents and to honour his father in particular by taking sides with his father. But that's not what happens. You see there in 1 Samuel chapter 20 verse 41. David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. You can see a beautiful relationship here. 
a relationship of deep care and love, and one might surmise that both of them are actually grieving, Jonathan grieving for his relationship with his father, David grieving because he knows what is taking place with Saul. There's a sense in which there's a deep sadness, actually, in terms of what's going on, but also a deep and intimate love for one another. And we see that unfold in the following verses when Jonathan says to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn a friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is a witness between you and me, between you, between your descendants and my descendants. And then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. Now, Jonathan and David actually only meet up one more time before Jonathan is killed. But this is a close, personal, warm, intimate, loyal friendship. And it's a friendship that even works at a distance. Even works over a period of time. Now, I don't know whether you've had the chance to experience friendships that are like that. Before I was married... Jane and I talked to three other people. They happened to be in our friendship circle, people we'd got to know fairly well. And we said to them, look, we're getting married and we would like you to be friends with us even after we get married. And because I was also going into the ministry at the time, even when I go into ministry. And we'd like you to walk with us throughout life. We want to invite you to be friends together with us. And that's actually what's happened. It's over 30 years later. We still have those three friends. Now, we don't see each other all the time. We don't meet up all the time. But we've been there at significant parts in each other's lives. One of the people involved was involved at the birth of both our children. They're involved in the weddings of our children. We still see them from time to time. We catch up. It's like catching up with old friends. They've known us. They've known us before we were married, before I was in ministry. It's kind of significant for me to have someone who knows me like that. Now, it hasn't always been easy. There's been years where we've all had busy things on. We've moved different parts. And it's not always easy to catch up. But there's something beautiful about a friendship that makes a commitment like that. And I think, actually, Jonathan and David's commitment is even far more beautiful than that. It's so rich, it's so deep, they have this strong covenant with each other. And notice, that covenant with each other actually trumps Jonathan's family ties. Now, there's more to say about this. I think we ought to honour our parents. And some of us here maybe actually ought to honour our parents more. But here at this particular point in time, we're introduced to a new thought. Now, what I'm about to say might sound a little confronting. I want to say that I'm very pro-marriage and I'm very pro-family. I know it's Valentine's Day and I'm a bit of a romantic myself, although I could be more romantic, I guess. I did get down on my knee 
in a rowboat in Orderly and invite my wife and invite my fiance, invite my girlfriend <laughs> to become my wife? And she said yes. I still managed to give her flowers every now and then, completely surprisingly, not because anything's happened. So I'm for that. Can I say that? I'm for those things. But Jonathan and David's friendship challenges us to get our views of family in perspective, to get our views of marriage in perspective. See, one of the, things I, one of the reasons I think we've lost the art of friendship is because we've been led to believe that there can be no closer bonds than those between siblings and spouses, between children and their parents. And all of our relationships in our family mean that friendships should take a back seat. Now, if we continue that thought and continue to think about the things that are taking place in our world, we also have this sort of belief that actually, if you're going to be truly intimate with someone and truly loyal to them, it must end up actually in sex. And so it leaves us with a certain uncertainty about relationships, a certain, like, how committed should I be to this person? Because actually, all around me, people say, Intimacy must lead to sex. And I think the problem with these things is it's about the ultimate, it's about the myth of the ultimate significance of sex, marriage, and the family. The idea that somehow loyalty and intimacy can't be found outside family ties. Now, I see it in lots of different ways. I see it particularly in, in what happens in weddings. Frequently, I'm asked to speak on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I think that's a great thing. It's a lovely passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonour others. It's not self-seeking. Love does not delight in evil, rejoices in truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And people have it at their wedding because they want their love for one another to be like that. And that's a great thing, of course. But if you look at the context of the passage, it's actually speaking about people at church together. It's actually speaking about the relationships between one another in a church. The pinnacle is actually not being presented as the marriage relationship. It's actually about people relating to one another in church. Now, as I said, I'm very pro-marriage and I'm very pro-families, but we need to have the right perspective. And the difficulty is, once we start to say that ultimate significance can be found in marriage or in families or in sex, there are a number of unfortunate consequences. First of all, it puts unreasonable demands on partners, unreasonable demands on wives and husbands and on children. Many, many times I've seen parents who are living through their children, expecting their children to be something, to fulfil something for themselves, 
And I think that's of great concern. It's an overstatement of what the relationship should be. It's like the child has to fulfil a need in the parent. It sometimes means, I think, that people feel like they only have their worth if they have succeeded in their parents' eyes. But perhaps more importantly, it's led to this kind of sense or this feeling, I guess, that I'm only worth something if I marry, marry Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright, if someone loves me as Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright. And if I get married, my life will be complete. And so, let me put this sensitively, sometimes we can fall in love with the idea of being married as solving our problems, as solving all our needs in terms of intimacy and loyalty and friendship. And can I tell you, as someone who loves marriage and who's been in a marriage for over 30 years, it doesn't. I love my wife dearly, but it doesn't solve all those things. It also means that married couples actually need to think fairly carefully about their relationships as well. I think there's a, there's a temptation to put a lot of pressure on, on marriages and to say, this is where I'm going to meet all my needs here and to stop dropping friends outside the relationship. And I know there's needs for adjustment. And I know when people start going out with each other, there is a need for adjustment because obviously some friendships are closer than others. But I think there's a falseness about saying, actually, I need to leave behind my other friends. And so I want to say to you married couples or couples who are going out together, do not leave your other friends behind. We are called to maintain friendships with one another. But the world we live in, because of its pressure about sex and marriage and intimacy, I think leads us down that path and robs us of deep friendships and turns friendships often into some sort of voluntary relationship with little depth to it. What more can we say about this? What else does the scriptures tell us to think in this regard? What more can we say? Well, the fact that Jonathan's, David and Jonathan's friendship operated with loyalty and intimacy outside their family connections foreshadows what Jesus has to say. The truth is the gospel fundamentally alters our understanding of relationships. Christ summons us to live very different and countercultural lives. He challenges the ultimate significance of sex, marriage, and the family. There's no sex in heaven. In fact, I reckon friendships are actually a foretaste of heaven. In Mark 3, the passage we just heard, Jesus had been calling his disciples and he'd been healing people and crowds had been gathering. In verse 20, we discover that his family is terribly embarrassed. Jesus has been drawing attention to himself. 
And this family is saying, no, no, you're bringing shame on the family. Please stop, we'll take him away. He's out of his mind, that's the explanation. He's out of his mind. And then a little later on in verse 31, we read this. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him to call to him. And a crowd sitting around him, a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Listen to what Jesus says. Who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked around those seated in the circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. See, Jesus is being asked about families. And I don't think he's saying he's rejecting them outright. We see that over and over again in the way he treats his mother. But he takes our basic notion of relationships and families and cracks it open. He says, I'm about creating something that's countercultural, that's so different that this world doesn't understand. And so, like Jonathan and David's relationship challenges us to reconsider friendships, Jesus challenges the significance of marriage and the family. And of course, all of that takes love and patience and kindness. It's about not dishonouring others or not being self-seeking. It's not about rejoicing in evil, but rejoicing in truth. It's about protecting, trusting, hoping, persevering with one another. Practically, I think Jesus' view of this world means that we need to make space in our lives for friendships, for deep, intimate, loyal friendships. Those who are married, I need to say to you, make space in your life for friendships outside your marriage. It's good for your marriage to do that. Make friends with the people who are on your path. Matt reminded us last week that sometimes God puts unusual people in our path, people we never thought that we would be in friendships with. Just make friends. And work on the art of loyalty and intimacy with one another. Now, I want to acknowledge it's actually not that easy, particularly in the context we're in, in the context where families are idolised, where sex is seen as the ultimate expression of an intimate friendship, where marriage is seen as the goal. The loyalty and intimacy that Jonathan and David had is not that easy to come by. And so frequently we fail at friendships, we fail to be loyal, we fail to entrust ourselves to others in intimacy. We fail to be countercultural in our relationships with one another. We fail at friendships because we idolise marriage and family and sex and we think those are ultimate expressions and they kind of get in the road in our imaginations of what a friendship could look like. And so I want to invite you to learn the art of friendship again. And the place I want to invite you to consider is your heart. To start there, come with me to John chapter 15 and to Jesus' words. 
We're going to return to this passage next week and Matt will continue to unfold it for us as we consider the the painfulness of friendships. But this week I want you to notice the loyalty and intimacy that Jesus portrays in friendship. Jesus is comforting his disciples. He's on his way to his death. As far as they know, that will be the last time they see him. And so he's speaking, he's discipling them, he's helping them understand what is taking place. He's preparing them. And see there in verse 12 of John 15. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay one's life down for one's friends. Listen to these beautiful words. You are my friends, if you do what I command. I will no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from the Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, I chose you. Isn't that just a beautiful moment? You've had difficulty with friendships, you've had difficulty getting into relationships with other people and growing in closeness. Here's Jesus saying, I want to be close to you. I understand the art of friendship. I have come close The God of the universe has come in a person. I am close and I am personal. And I am so loyal to our friendship that I want to die in your place. No greater love has anyone than this than to lay down their life for one's friends. And Jesus says... I want to become your friend and I want to lay down my life for you. And I think, I just think, then when we start to see that Jesus has already accepted me as his friend, that he showed me the greatest of loves, that he's laid down his life for me, when I start to understand that, I can start to deal with those things that prevent me from having deep, loyal and intimate friendships. I can put family and marriage and sex and intimacy in their proper places. I won't put them ahead of Christ. I'll see them as he sees them. And so I want to invite you, by only rejoicing in your acceptance of Jesus as a friend, your heart will change. Knowing his friendship means your heart will change. Knowing his intimacy means your heart will change. Knowing his loyalty means your heart will change. Knowing his love means your heart will change. And you will be freer to engage in the art of friendship because of his friendship for you. And so I want to invite you to entrust yourself to the one who wants to be your friend.
to let your heart be shaped and transformed by him so that you can give of yourself to others. You can love others. You can develop friendships because of what he's done for you and because of the power he gives you and enables you to do, do that with. But let me finish with these words and have them sitting with you as we conclude. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I have called you friends, for everything I learned from the Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.